morning. We have been following Ruth and Naomi as they have returned to Bethlehem and uh, as they come back to Bethlehem, um, uh, their two widows, vulnerable, in need of help, in need of provision, in need of protection, and through um, Ruth's willingness to go out and, and work hard, and, and also through her boldness, and then through this man Boaz, God has provided for them, has begun to provide for them, um, even to the point where in chapter 3 we saw Ruth do this, this incredibly <laughs> bold thing of going at night and, uh, and almost throwing herself, or really throwing herself at Boaz and, and basically asking him to marry her, in a sense, as she goes and lays there with him. And, and, uh, and, and she basically ends up asking if he would be their redeemer, if he would redeem them. Um, as Tyler mentioned last week, and uh, we mentioned before, then there's this, according to the laws in Israel and the customs, there's this, uh, they made provision for uh, a relative to be able to redeem, and um, either financially or or through protection, or even uh, marrying a woman if she's childless and having children with them, so so with her, so that they can, they can, you know, keep the, the family alive and going and connected to the land. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, and Boaz agrees, but he says, there's, you know, but there's another redeemer that's, that's kind of has priority over me, who's closer to you, and I'm, I'm going to go check with him to see if he wants to redeem you and care for you and provide for you. And, and that's what happens now in chapter 4. We're going to look at chapter 4, at least the first 12 verses, when Boaz goes and talks to this other redeemer and, uh, and basically gets things done. And, uh, um, and what we see in Boaz's actions is, is a lot of um, something to aspire to as we think about how to care for other people. So listen to Ruth 4, verses 1 to 12 as I read. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. 
You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as we look at this passage, that you would open your word up to us, that you would uh, open our eyes, our minds, our hearts to what you want to say, and that you would help us to respond as we should, that you would help us to surrender to you, that you would help us to um, uh, trust you and rest in you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout pop culture history, there have been many different rivals, pairs of people that we are given the opportunity to cheer for, to choose. Who do we like better? Um, of course, there's you know, Batman versus Superman. It's maybe one obvious one. Maybe another one, um, Team Edward versus Team Jacob in the Twilight movies. I'm not really that familiar with those. I haven't seen them. But uh, another one I'm not as familiar with, but I've heard a lot about or heard a lot about at the time was McDreamy versus McSteamy from Grey's Anatomy. Even if not rivals, there have also been many duos that invite us again to choose. Who do we like better? Who do we side with? Who do we want to be like? Um, back when I was a kid, I used to watch the Dukes of Hazard. You know, so you had Bo and Luke Duke. I don't know if you ever watched that, but uh, I was more of a Luke Duke guy. I liked him better than Bo. Um, there are others, you know, in, in, in the TV show Friends, you had Rachel and Monica. Um, in the Star Wars series, you, you got Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. Who do you like better? Who do you want to be like? Um, there's Laverne and there's Shirley, right? There's Bert and Ernie. Of course, I don't know if anybody really wants to be like Bert. Everybody loves Ernie, right? Ernie's the obvious choice there. I, I think that as we read this section of Ruth, we're presented with a pair of rivals here and invited to ask ourselves, who do we like better? Who should we aspire to be like? Um, we're encouraged to draw a comparison, I think, as you read these 12 verses, between Boaz and this other redeemer. Um, in several different ways, we're encouraged to notice that these guys are different. And um, really, the obvious choice is Boaz. In, in all sorts of ways, it encourages us to see that Boaz is the one that we should like more. Boaz is the one that we should want to be victorious. Boaz is the one that we should want to be like. And so I want to just look at three different ways that these two guys differ. Um, and to help us think about how that impacts what we should aspire to in our lives. Okay, So the first difference that we see between Boaz and this other redeemer is, is one is extremely proactive and the other is inactive. So we have a proactive guy and an inactive guy in their efforts to care for others, namely Ruth and Naomi. We didn't read it, but the very last verse, last week Tyler read it, the very last verse of chapter 3 quotes Naomi telling Ruth, after Ruth has told Naomi about Boaz and what he's, how he's, he's agreed to become their redeemer if, if this other guy doesn't do it, she says to, to Ruth, he's not going to rest until he sees this matter settled. That's the last verse of chapter 3. And then in, verse four, in chapter 4, we see immediately Boaz taking action, right? 
he goes to the gate, if you're not familiar with the, the custom uh, in, in, in that time, in, the, in that area, is that the gate of the city would be the place where the leaders would come together. They do a lot of business there, and, and the leaders would, would gather there and make decisions there and things like that. So Boaz goes immediately to the gate of the city, and uh, where all the, you have all these witnesses and these leaders to kind of ratify anything that happens. Um, and, and then he, he knows also that the, that the other redeemer is likely going to be there. And he grabs him, right, and sits him down. So he sits down the other redeemer. He sits down the elders to be witnesses to what he's going to do. And then as he kind of negotiates, in a sense, with this other redeemer, it seems like he has a very strategic plan in the way that he goes about it. Um, first, he tells the other redeemer of this opportunity to buy this land that belongs to Naomi or, or Elimelech that will support Naomi to redeem her. And that's all he says. And immediately the guy's like, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good deal. I'll do it. And then, but then he brings up the kind of the, the other thing. He's like, well, by the way, once you buy this land, you're also going to acquire Ruth, the Moabite. And once he hears that, he's like, oh, well, never mind. Actually, I'm, it's, it's not going to work for me. Um, he seems to have a whole strategic plan, and, and he's, he's very active in the way that he's going about trying to make this happen and become the redeemer of Ruth and Naomi. And, and in contrast, what you see is this other redeemer. And I just want to highlight verse 4. When, uh, when, when Boaz starts talking with the other redeemer, actually back up in verse 3, he says, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And then at the beginning of verse 4, he says, so I thought I would tell you of it. So I thought I would tell you of it. And that doesn't seem like much, but I think what's implied here is that, in essence, the other redeemer is... Uh, lives in Bethlehem in this area. And, and obviously he should have known about Naomi's return from Moab. He should know about this. And Boaz is saying, I, I thought I should have should mention this to you, this thing that you seem to not know about. <laughs> Actually, the, the, the Hebrew is, is an idiom. And, and instead of saying, I, I thought I would tell you of it, he's actually saying, I thought I, I would uncover your ears. So in, in essence, I think there's an implication here that the other redeemer has chosen not to pay attention, has chosen not to listen to the situation of Naomi and Ruth. He's chosen to be deaf, in a sense. And, and Boaz is saying, I thought I'd uncover your ears so that you would actually pay attention. See, I think the point is that this other redeemer has, has chosen to ignore the situation, has chosen to be inactive in this opportunity to care for and, and provide protection for Ruth and Naomi when he is first in line. In essence, have you, have you ever been, I don't know, some of you guys might have young people that live in your home with you or teenagers. And, and uh, in, in our house, this has happened before, where as you have teenagers in, in your house, often they will have earbuds in. And when they have earbuds in, it's impossible to get their attention. They're just listening to whatever, whatever they're listening to. In essence, they have chosen not to listen to anybody else. <laughs> They've chosen to ignore everybody else. And it's, in essence, that is what the Redeemer has done. He's put his earbuds in, and he's chosen not to pay attention. He's chosen to be inactive. Um, and, and so this is, uh, this is what uh, I think, at the very least, I think this is instructive for us as we think about the people that God has placed in our lives, whether they are our friends, our family members, the people we live with, our spouses, our children, our coworkers, our, our fellow students, 
the temptation for us all is to go about our lives for whatever reason. Maybe we are tired. Maybe we're stressed out. Maybe we're busy. Maybe we have enough problems of our own. Maybe we uh, maybe are annoyed by this other person or we feel like they don't really deserve it. But we, the temptation is to allow ourselves to be deaf to their needs, to not pay attention to them, to be inactive rather than proactive. Instead, what God calls us to is a care that is proactive. God calls us to be listening. God calls us to be thinking about how can I move towards the people around me to care for them, to love them? What is it that they need to hear from me? How do I need to be praying? I mean, maybe it's not even just proactive versus inactive. Maybe it's proactive versus reactive. I mean, this, guy, this other redeemer is kind of reacting to what Boaz is doing. And, and I think a lot of times that's the way that we love people around us. We kind of just react to issues or problems they have instead of going on the offensive. I mean, a lot of times that's how we pray for each other. You know, we don't pray for one another until they say, oh, I've got this major issue. Please pray for me. I mean, we should maybe be thinking, you know, how, how can I be, what, what do I need to be praying for my kids, my friends? What is it they need without having to have them tell us? You know, we need to be proactive in caring for the people around us and taking the first step, taking initiative. This is, the second difference is, is you have one guy who's people-focused and one guy who is cost-focused. One guy is focused on people, namely Ruth and Naomi, one guy who's focused on the cost to him. Boaz first tells the Redeemer that he is first in line to buy Naomi's, Naomi's land and thus helping to support her, right? Um, and he agrees, but then Boaz mentions that in buying the land, he's also going to acquire Ruth the Moabite, and he points out in order to perpetuate the name of the dead, Right? in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And that's when he's like, oh, uh, never mind. Um, I, 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 I just can't do it. It's going to be a problem. It's going gonna, it's gonna to impair my own inheritance. And so what exactly is happening here? Why is it that he is, you know, okay with buying the field when he just thinks it's Naomi, but then when he hears that Ruth is involved and that, that he might have to um, even marry Ruth and have children with Ruth, why does that cause a problem? Why does that cause him to immediately back out? And it has to do with, uh, a, big, a big part of this has to do with, the, um, in, in their culture, land was extremely important to a family. The land is what supported families. And there were laws in Israel that made sure that land stayed with a family and, and with the name of a family. It was passed down from father to son. It was important for your name to be connected with your land. And if somehow that was taken away, that was, that was a tragic, tragic thing. And so there were even laws in Israel um, where if, if you had kind of lost your land or had to sell your land, you would get, be able to get it back in the year of Jubilee. But uh, there was also a problem when there were no heirs, when, when a person didn't have any children to give their land to. That was a major tragedy because the land would then pass to someone else and be lost to them. And so they had these, these, these laws that, that provided for maybe if, 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 a, if a, a person got married, if a son got married and he wasn't able to have kids and he died, then there was a law that said that the brother had a responsibility for marrying that widow and having children with that widow. And the first child would then be associated with the dead brother and would carry on his name and continue to be connected with that land. And so this is the issue here. 
When the Redeemer first hears that it's just Naomi that he has to buy the land from and take care of, he's thinking, okay, well, I'll, I'll buy the land, and um, Naomi doesn't have any, um, any descendants or anything like that, and, and uh, I'll just have to kind of take care of her for a few years, and then when she dies, that land will be mine. It'll be a good deal. It'll be of benefit to me. But then when he hears about the fact that there's this daughter-in-law who's younger, who's able to have children, that she's involved and that he will acquire her as well and that, that he may be required then to marry her and have a child with her and that child will not be considered his. It will, that child will be, will be considered uh, Naomi's dead husband's and, and, and Elimelech's, Elimelech's, yeah, Elimelech's heir to the, to the field. So then that's a different situation. Now, not only does he have to take care of Naomi for a few years, but he's going to have to take care of Naomi and Ruth and any children that Ruth has. And after... Naomi dies, that field, even though he's bought it, he's put money out for it, that field is going to go back to Elimelech's family. It won't be his anymore. It's going to cost him. And if there are other kids born, they might have to split his inheritance, his kids' inheritance with them. And so it becomes a more costly situation for him. And when he hears about that, he's like, oh, no, never mind. I'm not going to do it. It's, 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 it's not going to be a benefit to me. It's going to cost me something to care for them. And here again, we, we learn Boaz is facing the exact same situation, and yet he's willing to do it, right? He's willing to redeem Ruth and Naomi. He's willing to accept the cost that comes with it. And this is what we learn as God holds up what, what we should aspire to. Boaz gives us a standard to strive for. As we think about our relationships, the priority has to be people. That's what Boaz cared about. Boaz cared about Ruth. Boaz cared about Naomi as opposed to the cost, as opposed to what it would cost him. And that's what God is saying is important for us in our relationships. As we, as we encounter needs of other people, the temptation for us is to think first about what is, it, what is it gonna cost me? And yet God says, no, what's important is the person and how you can care for them. And that's what I, I just wanna challenge us all as we think about the relationships that we have in our lives. What is it you think about when you're confronted with the need of someone? Is your first thought, what is this going to cost me? When you're confronted with maybe the financial need of somebody else, <laughs> do you not even consider it because you're like, well, I mean, yeah, I, I might have the money to help them, but that's going to prevent me from doing what I was planning on doing with that money. The, the cost is too much. Or maybe when you're confronted with or, or given the opportunity to, to help a person and serve a person, and, and you're like, well, it's going to cost me some time. I was planning on doing this. It's so easy, it's so temp tempting to, be, to, to think first about what is it going to cost me? Oh, this person needs somebody to sit with them and listen and just be with them, but that's just, it's just going to be emotionally too much. It's going to cost me too much. It's so easy for us to think first about the cost to us. And God says, no, it, it needs to be about the person. The person is what's most important, not what it's going to cost you. And so we see these two differences, this one, you know, encouragement for us to be proactive rather than reactive or inactive, and an encouragement to be focused on people rather than cost. The last difference is, is one that, that makes it clear, you know, why, why is it so clear that we should be rooting for Boaz rather than the other redeemer? And, and, uh, and, and I, would, I would highlight it this way, um, the, the, the big difference between these two guys is that in the end, one is famous and one is nameless. One is famous and one is nameless. 
after they make the deal official with the sandal ceremony, we're not going to get into that. I'm not really sure what the importance of that is for us. The people at the gate and the witnesses all proclaim together this incredible blessing, asking God to bless Ruth, that she would become like Rachel and Leah, right? And, and who, who were uh, the, the women that, that gave birth to the guys who would become the, the ancestors of the 12 tribes of Israel. They, were, they, they gave birth to the family of Jacob that would become the, um, the foundation for the nation of Israel. And, and so they, they, they wish this blessing upon Boaz and Ruth that she would be just as fruitful, which seems, you know, incredible. But then as it continues on in this blessing down in verse 11, it says, may you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem. May you be renowned. May people know your name. Actually, that's what the Hebrew says more literally. You know, may, may they call the name in Bethlehem. May they call, may your name become known in Bethlehem, right? And so because of all that Boaz has done, because of his character, because of his worth, because of what he's chosen to, to how he's chosen to love Naomi, they're like, you deserve to be known. Your name deserves to be known, Right? This is all in stark contrast to the other redeemer. Have you noticed what the other redeemer's name is? As we've read, I, I'm guessing you've probably noticed. It's been very awkward for me to compare Boaz and this other guy because this other guy is never named. We never find out what this other guy's name is, even though I'm sure Boaz knew his name. And yet in verse 1, when he, when he sees the other redeemer, what does he say? He says, turn aside, friend. Actually, the, the Hebrew right there is this, this couplet of words that rhyme. And, uh, and actually, these words actually mean Mr. So-and-so. So in, in, in literally, the Hebrew says, turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. And so I think what's happening here is the author of Ruth is intentionally going out of their way to say, this guy's name doesn't deserve to be known. <laughs> I don't want you guys to know this guy's name. Why? Because... He, he's, he's inactive in loving. He, all he cares about is the cost. He's nameless on purpose. And this is a, a radical difference we see between Boaz and this other guy. And, and I think it, it, it goes to show us that, number one, as we think about the way that we treat other people and care for other people and love people, God says, Boaz is the pattern for you to follow. Look at Boaz. As you love people this way, as you are proactive, and moving towards people and thinking, how can I love this person? How can I be strategic about loving this person? How can I love this person best? Um, as, we, as we focus on the person in front of me rather than the cost, God delights in that. God celebrates that. God loves that. That's what God wants for us in, in the way that we care for people. However, before you get too carried away thinking that, okay, well, yeah, this is how I'm going to, this is how I, I need to, to live so that I can feel good about myself so other people can look up to me. <laughs> is that I, I need to get good at loving like Boaz. Let me, let me point out one other thing about what is celebrated here as these people wish this blessing upon Boaz and Ruth. In verse 12, they continue to say, and may your house be like the house of Perez. Now, Perez, the house of Perez is a, a, becomes a strong house. He's an ancestor of Boaz, of the people in Bethlehem. But then they continue on. The house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. 
whom Tamar bore to Judah. I don't know how familiar you are are to Tamar and Judah, but it's a reference to this thing that happens back in Genesis 38. And it's one of those stories in the Bible that you read and you're like, ooh, that's, that makes me uncomfortable. That's messy. That's ugly. Let me just give you the synopsis. Basically, Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, you know, one of the most well-known ones, right? Um, and he marries a Canaanite woman, and, and they have children. And their firstborn son is named Ur. And Ur takes a wife for himself. And it's very likely she is also a foreigner. And her name is Tamar. And so uh, Ur marries Tamar, but they're unable to have children. And, and, and they don't have children yet. And, and it says that Ur is wicked in the sight of God, and he's killed in judgment. And they don't have any kids. And so as the custom that we talked about before, it, um, Judah encourages, gives his second son, Onan, to Tamar to have children so that, you know, Ur's line could continue on. And Onan, it says, um, intentionally went out of his way not to have children with Tamar. And in the end, God allowed him to die as well in judgment. And so Judah looks at the situation, and he's like, oh man, first Ur dies, and Onan dies, they haven't had any kids. Tamar must be trouble. She must be a bad influence, and so I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to just tell her to wait and I'm not going to give my other son to her. And, I'm, you know, and, and so even though she's a widow, even though she's childless, even though she's vulnerable, even though she, she's in a, a foreigner and despised in a lot of ways, um, Judah doesn't take responsibility to care for her as he should. So here Tamar is, vulnerable, um, and, and, and she takes matters into her own hands. After Judah's wife dies, her father-in-law's wife dies, she dresses up as a prostitute and she covers her face in disguise and waits beside the road for Judah to come along. And Judah sees this, what he sees is a prostitute and he goes into her and gets her pregnant. So Tamar is, is pregnant now by her father-in-law. And, uh, and as it becomes aware that everybody becomes aware that, she becomes, that she's pregnant, months later, uh, Judah, you know, is, is righteously indignant. And he, he's like, oh, this is terrible, this sinful woman. And he wants her to be judged and even killed. And, and then she produces some evidence that, no, you're the father of the children, of the child. She actually has twins. And so she lives and she has these kids. And the oldest is Perez. And so... This is, 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 you know, as I said, it's one of those stories in the Bible. You're like, what is that? All of this messiness, all of this ugliness. And yet, it's, God uses, particularly this woman who's despised, who is an outcast, who is mistreated. And this sinful situation, God actually uses it to bring about blessing. This line of Perez that continues on. And this is, I think this is the point that I want to make. You know, Boaz is hearing all of these wishes for fame and greatness and and then the mention of Tamar and Judah. And I can imagine it's possible that when Boaz hears them mention Tamar and Judah, he's like, uh, what, what was that? But this is the point I think that's being made. God loves to pour out his grace and to celebrate his grace that is given to those (laughs) um, 
who don't deserve it, to those who are despised. And, and Boaz hears the people comparing him and Ruth to Tamar and Judah. And, and the point, I think, again, the point is this, that, that um, what we should aspire to is to be people that are celebrated for being receivers of the grace of God. Not just being people who are really good at loving and exceptional and worthy, but being people who are despised, who are outcasts, who are vulnerable, who are helpless, and who need the work of God in our lives. That is the point. God loves to celebrate and make famous those who are satisfied to be considered receivers of grace. So do you want significance? Do you want glory? Then yes, strive to live like Boaz does here. But before that, first and foremost, be content to celebrate the gift of God's grace. The fact that on your own, you deserve to be despised. You deserve to be cast aside. You deserve to be seen as unworthy, but that through the work of God, specifically through the work of Jesus Christ, you have a name. God knows your name. You are worthy because of what God has done. And this is what he invites us to to aspire to, to live lives of love, of radical love, proactive love, people-centered love, but lives of love that are, that are undergirded and empowered by an experience of the grace of God. A celebration that that's, that's, that's who we are at the core of our being. People who have received God's grace. Just like Tamar and Judah. Just like Boaz and Ruth. That is who God calls us to aspire to. And so what we're going to do now in response to that is is to confess our sin, our need for the grace of God. And we're going to use the prayer that's printed in the order of worship. There's a, a confession of sin there. Let's confess our sin together and, and in doing so celebrate the, the fact that who we are is receivers of the grace of God. Please pray with me. Awesome and compassionate God. You have loved us with unfailing, self-giving mercy, but we have not loved you. You constantly call us, but we do not listen. You ask us to love, but we walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. God of grace, as you come to us in mercy, we repent and gratefully receive your forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Father, we now take a moment to privately confess our individual sin to you now. Father, we thank you for the way that you have loved us by being proactive, by coming to us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By focusing on us and our need rather than on what it would cost you. Father, we pray that you would help us that the core of our identity more than anything else would not be how uh, good we are or are trying to be, but on how good you've been to us your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 4, 4 4-5 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's continue to work.